0: This week's episode is brought to you by Third Eye Comics, your friendly neighborhood comic shop with seven locations in the Maryland, D.C., and Virginia area. They're your one-stop shop for all things comics, graphic novels, toys, games, records, movies, and more.
1: Not local, but still looking for an awesome place to meet all your comic needs? They've got an amazing website, shop.thirdeyecomics.com, where you can browse thousands of items, Pre-order your new comics and have it sent right to your doorstep for a flat $5 shipping rate.
0: They were such a blessing during lockdown. Mm -hmm. Just as our Usagi Yojimbo passions were brewing, we were able to reach out to them, order all the books that they had on their shelves, all the saga collections from Dark Horse Comics, and get them to our door lickety split.
1: And here's a little hot tip they have out of print comics at cover price. I hate to tell you that, because we (laughs) want them all for ourselves.
0: We do not have a Third Eye Comics near us, but we do make the long trek out to Annapolis on a routine basis because the shop is so grand and gorgeous. And it's an honor to have Third Eye Comics sponsoring comic book couples counseling because yes, they are one of the best comic book shops in the country. Google any best comic book shop list and you will find them.
1: And it's in no small part because they have the kindest, most helpful, coolest staff on the planet. They will fill your comics niche.
0: But again, even if you're not within driving distance, it's worth checking out their website. Find a link in the show notes and start browsing and shopping today.
1: Third Eye is here to help you read comics, Play games, collect toys, spin records, and never grow up. Bum <laughs> You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson.
0: I'm Brad Gullickson.
1: And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the Four Color Realm. In this episode, we're playing metaphorical hot potato with a sliver of the void. And guess what, Brad? What? I'm it. We have Scott Summers and Emma Frost <laughs> from Dark X Men The Confession and more. Clasping hands on our counseling couch, and we'll be applying How to Be the Love You Seek, Break Cycles, Find Peace, and Heal Your Relationships by Dr. Nicole LaPera to their relationship woes.
0: As always, it's a little tricky to find time to record these podcast episodes. We never have like a set schedule. Our lives just don't uh, allow for that. And Lisa, your week this past week has been insane. Yeah. And normally, what happens is because you love cooking, I do. You're the chef of the family. I am. And I am lazy, and <laughs> I can't fend for myself. So I just wait for you to come home really late at night. And even though it's like 9 o'clock, I'm like, Lisa, get to the stove that's and start making how it me happens. dinner. <laughs> how it
1: happens is I come home from work, and part of my decompressing process is getting into the kitchen and making food. Because it's something like that's very active, so it quiets the demons yeah, in yeah. my mind that are chitter-chattering about my work day.
0: But this past week, you really have not been able to do that at all. And I was like, Lisa... I can rise up I've been watching a lot of top chef yeah. with you and I think I can do some actual cooking
1: which is a revolution in our household because <laughs> you didn't you haven't even had like the curiosity to do it you know what I mean uh,
0: I mean I, yes that that is a that's a fair statement I think that deep down I've had a curiosity to do it for a while but I didn't have the confidence to try, mm. right? Uh, but I had a conversation this past week with cartoonist Dave Baker, uh, who has a new book coming out called Mary Tyler Moorhawk. And that is gonna be found on the website comicbookcouplescounseling.com Cut this week. Uh, and in that conversation, he uses this phrase, the beauty of the attempt, mm. right? And that has been rattling around in my noggin these last several days and I thought to myself, well, yeah, the beauty is in the attempt to do that dish. The dish doesn't have to be perfect. The beauty isn't in the result. The beauty is in me trying to do it and also help the family in the process, our family of two.
1: Yes, and what that has allowed me to do is work on notes in the evening, which is something I haven't been able to do in the past, but I've been really motivated by talking schema because it has been the literal most yeah, fun
0: and that's how we're able to record right now yeah. in the middle of the week look at Making it happen. <laughs> uh, but I do want to just relate some of my cooking adventures for our listeners. Please do. I've done a few meals now at this point. I did a sweet potato enchilada situation, which was pretty good. I
1: thought it was yummy. I
0: didn't love it. And then I did, well, I ultimately ended up doing a Poke Bowl. I was attempting to make actual sushi without the right equipment. (laughs) Uh, And guess what? You can't do that. You gotta have some of the tools. Uh, But that was pretty good, too. Yeah, uh,
1: You've made it twice, because I requested it a second time.
0: My favorite, though, was what I made the other night, which was a butternut squash risotto. And for our top chef listeners out there, the people who obsess over that show like we do, you know that a risotto is the kiss of death on that show. And because of that, I wanted to try it. And the rest that I had said that I could do it in 30 minutes. Well, Tom Colicchio has told us you can't do a risotto in 30 minutes, and friends, he's right, you can't.
1: <laughs> Especially the way that you were doing
0: it. <laughs> Which was what, Lisa?
1: So the key to risotto is that you are gradually adding stock.
0: Yep, yep, yeah, yep, yeah. I was doing that.
1: To the rice uh-huh. and cooking it out, uh-huh. Uh-huh. but the stock has to be hot. Yeah, because yeah, every yeah, time yeah, yeah, you yeah. add right. room temperature stock, The cooking stops.
0: Yeah, and I did double check the recipe and the recipe did say that and I just missed that part. I also missed the part where it told me the measurements. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so I went to the grocery store with the recipe and I bought all the ingredients and then I got home to cook it and then I could not find the measurements. Well, it turns out if you scrolled all the way down to that website, Mm -hmm. their measurements were at the very, very, very bottom after the instructions and after the ingredient list, which I found infuriating. But But that's
1: how they all are and you know this now.
0: Now I know that. Now I know that. But when I was making the risotto, I was making it with leeks, and I was making it with sweet potatoes again, because uh, Lisa loves sweet potatoes.
1: Do, do by sweet potatoes, you mean butternut squash? Same
0: thing, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, I was making butternut squash, and, you know, I chop up that, and I start to saute them, and I, you know, it was a whole butternut squash, and it was three whole leeks. I was like, that's a lot of squash and leeks. This is more than, like, a cup of rice, so let's do three cups of rice. Yeah. And that's when things went off the rails. <laughs> uh, and so I'm doing the thing, you know. I, I I saute the vegetables. I toast the rice. I mix it in. I put in a little white wine. I I cook off the white wine. It's now time to start adding the stock, three fourths cup at a time. And you know, I I complete an entire, you know, two cups worth of stock, and the rice is still super crunchy. And I'm like, I don't. Do I crack open another batch of stock, and I did, and then I'm still mixing, three-fourths at a time. Still mixing. Then Lisa calls up, and she's like, what are you doing? She's like, oh my god, it's not hot. You gotta do it hot. Heat up a kettle and use water now. Stop wasting stock.
1: Well, I mean, you'd already concentrated the stock anyway. There's no...
0: That's true. That's true. That's true. And and, and so, that's what I do.
1: Granted, I did not know you were making three cups (laughs) of Arborio rice.
0: (laughs) So, I'm pouring in the scalding water now, and I'm stirring, and my arm is getting tired like this is like a real workout I might as well be at the YMCA and uh, I'm pouring in the hot boiling water and I'm stirring like like the Tasmanian devil and then I kick up the boiling water onto my left hand and I boil the hell out of my left hand and By the way, Lisa is on the phone with me when I do this. Yeah. And she gets to hear me unleash a torrent of profanity. It was
1: very colorful. And I'm hopping
0: up and down, our poor neighbors down below, as I'm screaming obscenities and watching my hand turn bright red. Uh, Got it under the ice, uh, lickety split. And and actually, thankfully, like a couple days later, uh, you can't even really tell that I've boiled my hand. Yeah. Um, but I, I promise you that I did. Yeah. Uh, but guess what? An hour and a half later, the risotto was overcooked. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but it was really tasty. It tastes
1: delicious. And guess what? A lot of the standards for these meals are just arbitrary.
0: What do you mean? Uh, dig into that.
1: So like, um, Tom
0: Colicchio. Tom
1: Colicchio insists on the specific. Texture right, yeah. of risotto, right. where it should spread perfectly, and all of that stuff. Right, right. But it, mine it comes... almost
0: spread. When I put it on the plate, it almost spread.
1: Um, it <laughs> almost okay. Uh, almost. I'm just gonna leave that there.
0: Okay.
1: But like, in order to make something delicious and satisfying as a meal, it doesn't have to meet these arbitrary Tom Colicchio. The flavors got
0: to be there. Yeah, right? it just
1: has to be yummy.
0: And I gotta say, the flavor was there, Yeah, it was and so I was good. super happy with my butternut squash risotto. And I feel like a top chef.
1: Yes, yes. And then we got to reheat it today. Yeah,
0: yeah. Added and some you stock. You added
1: some stock. Yeah, and added
0: more wine actually too. Cooked that off.
1: Tastes delicious. And now it was like more of like a a loose congee yeah. texture. Yeah. You put some chili crisp on that. I
0: I feel like a new person. I'm excited about this new geekdom that I'm exploring.
1: Me too. And guess what? Brad has also discovered that food that you don't cook for yourself tastes better. So Brad is eating his food and he's like, I don't know if I'm fully satisfied with this, but I didn't cook it. So I'm like, nom, 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 nom. Yeah, yeah. So yummy. That
0: That is true. And it wasn't... Until the second, like until we had seconds of the risotto, where I was really like, oh, yeah, this was worth. The boiling of the hand, and I do think that there is something really bonding about cooking together because we've done that a couple times. Yeah,
1: we made this a this um, past week too. We made that potato leek soup like side by side in our tiny kitchen, and which usually I hate. Right, like if Brad right. comes in the kitchen, but your
0: love kitchen. tank was full, yeah. So you were like, "Come on into the kitchen with and me plus, and we let's do And plus, we were doing this.
1: the same thing. So yeah, and, well.
0: and so that was really fun, and it got me thinking, like. That's what Scott and Emma need to be doing. They need to be doing some cooking. They need to be doing stuff away from their X-Men activities. They
1: need hobbies. They
0: need hobbies. Eh,
1: Like, so many of the X-Men problems, any X-Men, could be helped by just like, hey, have a life outside of the X-Men. Yeah, and we've talked about
0: this before. Some of our favorite X-Men issues are the issues that step away from the plot. You know, you think about the baseball game in the Chris Claremont... Is it a baseball game? No, it's a basketball game. Yeah. A basketball game in the Chris Claremont-Jim Lee issues, the adjective list issues. You think about, like, the Thanksgiving dinner issue from Uncanny X-Men.
1: Or Rogan Gambit.
0: Going out and having a date. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we need more X-Men stories where people are doing things, and I would love to see Scott and Emma... Uh, you know, make a meal together. You know.
1: Yeah, I would love that. Yeah. But there are, of course, X Men fans who feel the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they get, <laughs> but
0: they're being fed really, really well. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm super excited that we have landed on episode two of our counseling session series with Scott Summers and Emma Frost. I
1: feel like I've learned so much about them as people. And of course, we're also learning about ourselves, which feels great.
0: Now, that is basically us also telling you that if this is your first uh, Scott and Emma episode with Comic Book Couples Counseling, Well, there's at least two other episodes. Uh, There was the episode in which we discussed Planet X and Here Comes Tomorrow, our last Scott and Emma episode. And then there was also our fifth anniversary special where we revisited the psychic affair between Scott and Emma in Grant Morrison's run as well. Links in the show notes. Uh, Go take a gander at those episodes if you want to catch up on this particular conversation that we're kind of in midstream with. Yeah,
1: and if you wanna really go deep, you can go find our first four episodes, which were Scott and Jean episodes.
0: I'm not including links to those episodes. Because those
1: episodes were not peak podcast. We were just getting our footing.
0: Yeah, and and, and Brad just can't handle listening to that (laughs) past Brad. They're
1: a little bit cringe. (laughs) Uh,
0: In this episode, we're jumping into a specific moment in their relationship when they put it all out there for each other and got as close to a high functioning couple as they ever really do. during their entire romantic tenure. Uh, But this is a heck of a continuity jump from our last Scott and Emma discussion. Uh, It's practically impossible to determine how much story time has passed between then and now, but we can determine exactly how much publishing time has passed. It's about five years, uh, 2004 to 2009. Dark X-Men The Confession was a one-shot published by Marvel Comics in September of 2009. It's written by Craig Kyle and Chris Yost, penciled by Bing Cancino, inked by Roland Paris, colored by Edgar Delgado and Brian Reber, and lettered by Rob Steen. And we're pairing that with Uncanny X-Men issues 518 and 519, which were published by Marvel between December of 2009 and January of 2010. They were written by Matt Fraction, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Rachel Dodson, colored by Justin Ponzor and lettered by Joe Caramagna. Uh, Dark X-Men The Confession is part of the fallout from the Utopia crossover event that spanned all the X titles at the time. And here's what you need to know about it.
1: Yes, please, because I may be full of risotto. But I am starved for some context for this story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, when I was reading the confession, I was like, is any of this going to make any sense to Lisa? Uh, We're going to need to do some hand-holding. So that's what this portion of the podcast is for. So... As a result of House of M when Wanda Maximoff whispered no more mutants the mutant population was radically reduced to almost nothing however recently a mutant child who would eventually grow up to be Hope Summers but we cannot get into that right now is born in a small town in Alaska that town was eradicated during a brawl between the Marauders and the Purifiers and humanity is on edge once again regarding the mutant question. As a result of Secret Invasion, Norman Osborn, a.k.a. the former Green Goblin, is running Hammer, the American government institution that replaced S.H.I.E.L.D. He's formed his own Dark Avengers, as well as a dark X-Men team led by Emma Frost, a mutant he thinks he can trust or at least control.
1: I feel like I need like a running timeline. I feel like I need like a visual X-Men history
0: I'm sure you can find some fan-created one, and even if you went to somebody like the Comic Book Herald Mm -hmm, website and mm -hmm. looked at their reading uh, list, I bet you there's something that you could track. Uh, But Marvel itself cannot publish enough encyclopedias fast enough to really capture the insanity of the X-Men timeline. Because
1: all of these points are familiar to me, I I just get confused in what order they happen, and what what order have they happened in... in Context to the stories we're reading right now.
0: Right, right, right. Well, that's what I'm trying to do, Lisa.
1: Sorry, I'm listening. So
0: right before uh, Dark X-Men The Confession, uh, in California, the Proposition X legislation starts to gain traction. And if passed, it would require all human-born X-gene-positive people to undergo mandatory chemical birth control riots erupt across San Francisco where the X-Men are stationed and Norman Osborn sends in his dark Avengers to quell them war rages. And during that conflict, Emma Frost betrays Norman and is infected by a sliver of the void, the malevolent entity that lives within the dark Avenger known as the century. Uh, She thinks she can control it. We shall see about that. And also during this conflict, you <laughs> Asteroid M rises from the ocean floor and becomes an island, and Cyclops makes it an independent nation for all mutants. It's the Krakoan era before the Krakoan era, basically. Got it. Yeah, sure you do. (laughs) Uh, Now, currently we have Scott and Emma in our waiting room, waiting for their counseling session to begin, but before we get into it with them, Lisa, we gotta talk about our love expert, who will be helping us through these often murky, romantic
1: Yes, of course. Brad and I are not relationship experts. We are only experts in loving each other, and we only counsel fictional characters. (laughs) Just putting that out there. So our relationship expert for Scott and Emma is still Dr. Nicole LaPera, a.k.a the holistic psychologist using her book, How to Be the Love You Seek. In our last session with Scott and Emma, we introduced Dr. LaPera's concepts of the conditioned self versus the authentic self. Your conditioned self is the version of yourself that you are habitually after being conditioned by situations that made you feel insecure or unsafe. Your subconscious drives your behavior away from situations that gave you negative results and towards what gave you positive results. Your authentic self is the person you would be if you had never experienced any insecurity or discomfort. The person that is encoded in your soul, the existence of which we are just accepting as part of the premise. When Dr. LaPera had a clinical practice, clients would come to her complaining about being stuck in a pattern of failed relationships where the results were always the same. Either they would feel unlovable or they had always selected unsuitable partners. The conclusion that Dr. LaPera came to is that it was not their authentic selves they were bringing on dates, but rather their subconscious was sending conditioned selves and their conditioned selves were not making an authentic romantic bond, but rather, A trauma bond. Wee-woo, 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 red flag alert. (laughs) Dr. LaPera has a pesky habit of redefining psychological terms in a way that I personally find misleading, Mm. particularly in Chapter 3, Understanding the Neurobiology of Trauma Bonds, in which she redefines the terms trauma and trauma bonding. She defines trauma as any stress that exceeds our ability to emotionally process the experience and says that couples that end up in relationships that mirror our traumatic parental relationships as trauma bonding. Mm. According to the DSM-5, trauma is defined as when an individual person is exposed to, quote, actual or threatened death serious injury, or sexual violence. Mm. And trauma bonding is when someone has had a hard time leaving a traumatic relationship because of the positive reinforcement that follows abuse. I find it super problematic that she's reappropriating clearly defined terms. Terms like trauma and trauma bonding yeah. are set aside for specific circumstances for a reason. So let's like not just toss them around yeah. willy-nilly.
0: Agreed.
1: So instead of saying trauma bond, we are going to say conditional bond. Okay, Uh, okay?
0: okay. So
1: a conditional bond is when we choose someone who suits our conditioned self in a way that the relationship mirrors the attachment that we had with our parents. Okay. For example, in the last episode, we speculated that Emma's attraction to Scott may be the result of a conditional bond. She she said herself that she finds him aloof. And we know from earlier in New X-Men, Emma's dad kept her at arm's length until he found her useful. And then she got the satisfaction of rejecting him. (laughs) Maybe subconsciously that was what she was doing with Scott with the added bonus of pissing off Jean Grey. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, Initially and then falling actually into love with Scott.
1: Exactly. So how are we going to encourage Scott and Emma to molt these conditioned selves so that they can find a true, authentic relationship? First, they have to recognize their conditioned selves. According to Dr. LaPera, there are seven conditioned selves. So, Brad, I want you to listen super closely, because I'm going to quiz you after I say them and go like, do any of these sound like Scott and or Emma? Okay, okay, okay. okay. I'm also going to blow the dust off of (laughs) a super old CBCC bit, because I'm about to do a bulleted list. (laughs) ba Caretaker. A caretaker gains a sense of identity and self-worth by meeting others' needs. They believe that the only way to receive love is to care for someone else physically or emotionally, they tend to be, and remember this sort of phrase, hypervigilant people pleasers. Patel, overachiever. Overachievers attempt to be perfect in all things, including relationships. They require constant external validation and are consumed by comparing themselves to others. In relationships, they try to carry most of the responsibility and struggle to ask for or receive support. They tend to be preoccupied with self-analysis and self-criticism, especially when deprived of external validation. It's
0: hard not to just jump in and start going like, okay, I know who that, f- that belongs to. Yeah,
1: yeah, well... Keep your eggs in your basket. That's not a turn of phrase, but that's what I'm telling you to do. Patow! Underachiever avoids evaluation and judgment by attempting to go unnoticed. They have low self-worth, fear criticism, can be emotionally distant, avoidant, and disengaged in order to avoid rejection. I know who this is too. (laughs) They may act out as a means to receive negative attention in order to validate deep-rooted feelings of unworthiness. They often distract themselves with self-deprecating thoughts and detach themselves, slowing down motivation and energy to delay decisions or actions. Patow, rescuer slash protector. They find themselves in relationships that allow them to rescue, protect, or be of service to someone they perceive as helpless. They gain a sense of superiority for not needing help themselves, and therefore find it difficult to ask for support when necessary. Like caretakers, rescue protectors tend to be hyper-vigilant people pleasers, but they focus more on people they perceive as specifically vulnerable.
0: Some of these could be both.
1: Right, and this isn't like Enneagram where you can right, be like right, one, right. Yeah, you yeah. can sh- you can kind of shape shift between these conditioned selves, which I think is ultimately what we're going to be talking about. Patel, life of the party, fears uncomfortable emotions or experiences and avoids conflicts at all costs. They avoid voicing issues or opinions that may cause upset or disappointment. They appear to be happy, but are often detached from reality, numbing, disassociating, or distancing themselves from uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, and experiences. I do have a character in mind for that one, but it's not from the X Men. Interesting. Do you do you know who I'm thinking about? No. Mary Jane.
0: Oh. Uh, when we first yeah, meet yeah, yeah, her in yeah, the sixties. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Patel. Yes, person. They're agreeable with no expressed preferences in relationships. They are people pleasing pushovers. They can be codependent, often neglecting their own needs for others. They pride themselves on being selfless. Or martyrs who overgive and underreceive. They regularly adopt the interests and habits of others and feel lost or helpless without outside direction. Look, Brad, another hyper-vigilant people pleaser. <laughs> Patao, hero worshiper. They look up to those they're in a relationship with or put others on a pedestal. They believe that others know what's best for them and are easily influenced and dismissive of themselves. They tend to idealize others and often blame or shame themselves for having their own thoughts or needs. They are also hypervigilant people pleasers, giving others' opinions primacy over their own. I think it's kind of weird that five out of seven of these are expressly hypervigilant people pleasers. Mm. I would think that, like, you know... People would be just generally more happy with all of these people people pleasing <laughs> all of the time. Uh
0: well, can I do a few? Can I do a few? Yes, please. Uh Hero Worshipper, Scott Summers. Definitely oh, yeah. does that with Jean Gray. Sure. Right? And also um, with
1: uh Charles Xavier. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh also an underachiever. Yes. Right? Big time.
1: Big time, especially in our last session. Yeah,
0: and overachiever, probably Emma Frost. Uh not not a problem right there. Yep. And what was there was another one I had like uh a Caretaker, also kind of falls in with i mean at times both of them and we see some caretaking going on with emma and scott in these issues that we're about to discuss but we also see that with scott towards emma
1: yeah i also see it with charles xavier too sure
0: sure 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 yeah
1: yeah so like i think that there's just like a lot of interesting meat here i think it's going to be really fun to like point out when we see either Emma or Scott being a conditioned self. And hopefully by bringing that to their attention, they can express more autonomy over their subconscious and make a choice that perhaps leads them more towards their authentic wants and needs and desires. Yeah.
0: Uh, Before we can do that though, before we can dig into these specific issues, we gotta do some... Referral! Sponsored by Omnibus. Omnibus is a modern digital comic book store and reader app carrying your favorite single issues, volumes and omnibuses all day and date. Just like your local comic book store, you pay per book, but digital.
1: Their focus is on building an excellent customer shopping and reading experience and using novel discovery features to help fans find their next new favorite book. They feature top tier content and already have many of the top publishers in comics today.
0: In the spirit of helping people find their next new favorite book, we have our referrals segment. The idea is to give our counselees, that's you guys, further reading on the themes of the episode. Think of it as us sending you to specialists to further your healing journey through comic books.
1: I'm going to go first this week. So for my referral, I wanted to go with something that had to do with, like, being, like, far removed from your authentic self or even isolated from your authentic self. Because to me, like... The idea of conditioned selves and authentic selves, how do you not become like resentful of your circumstances mm-hmm, that are mm-hmm, making mm-hmm, you be this mm-hmm. conditional version of yourself? So what I decided upon, and I'm pretty proud of it, is The Alternates mm-hmm. by writers Jordan Blum, mm-hmm. Patton Oswald, and Tim Seeley, with artists Christopher Mitten, Tess Fowler, Ian Herring, and innate Picos, or Picos, I don't know how to pronounce it. You should all be familiar with minor threats.
0: Patton and Jordan, they were on the show.
1: Exactly. And that's all about like B-level supervillains like trying to make space for themselves in in the underbelly of a Gotham-like city. Well, um The Alternates is a spin-off comic, but this is B-level superheroes. And they this group of superheroes went for a sacrifice play in a multidimensional war. But instead of dying, they ended up living five years in this alternate dimension. And instead of the dimension that they live in in Twilight City, which is a a two-dimensional dimension, this other dimension was a four-dimensional dimension where they could expand their powers, they expanded their minds, they lived this extremely expansive existence and now they've returned and they're trying to readjust to living in two dimensions and of course it sucks right like how do you not go like I was so much more myself where things were easier where things were more exciting where things were more conducive to the way that I want to live and so what I'm like looking forward to and trying to like work on in my mind is how do you live with the awareness of your authentic self without then feeling like restricted to circumstances that doesn't allow you to be that person?
0: Great referral, Lisa. I too really enjoy the alternates and I'm very excited for Minor Threats' proper return coming real darn soon from Dark Horse Comics. Yes, please. And you, Lisa, have accidentally stumbled into my realm as well because the book that I'm picking was also written by Tim Seeley. Oh, hey. Uh, it is Local Man, done in collaboration with Tony Fleeks. I believe that's how you pronounce Fleeks. I've never met the man.
1: Nobody has accused you of meeting these people. I like the conceit that like every name we pronounce correctly is because, well, we've met the man.
0: <laughs> you be quiet.
1: I'm trying. Let me
0: do my referral. Stop being so hilarious and cute. Uh, Local Man is the perfect comic for a reader like myself, it is about this superhero who's basically a stand-in for Shaft from Youngblood, the 90s uh, Rob Liefeld creation. And this guy named Crossjack, he was a big deal once upon a time. Uh, He's fallen on hard times. And we don't know exactly what went wrong. We gather that he did something that has caused the ire of the superhero community, but also just the American populace as a whole. So he has moved back in with his parents in this small town. And, you know, he's struggling. Like, what does a superhero do? when they can no longer superhero, yeah. and when everyone now hates them, and when bodies start to pile up in the town.
1: This sounds amazing.
0: You're gonna really, really like it. The, the thing about Local Man is it's also kind of like an Easter egg hunt, mm-hmm. where, the like, for example, I'm not gonna spoil it, but the last page of the first issue is a direct reference to one of the most infamous moments from Todd McFarlane's Spawn right awesome. and throughout local man you are getting ties to the larger and older image comics universe it's oh a goodness. lot of fun and crossjack is a complicated kind of pitiful character and there are these like relationship dynamics throughout local man that feel in the same chris claremonty way as X-Men relationships do. And so I think if you're really enjoying the more muddy, uh, romantic, but also just character dynamics of the X-Men stories, you're gonna have a good time with Local Man, but you're gonna love Local Man if you're a 90s head like myself. Awesome.
1: Awesome. What... Great referrals. Yeah. We have we have recommended some amazing books, y'all.
0: Yeah, yeah, and they are all available right now on Omnibus. You don't need an iPad, you don't need the app. If you have a browser, you have access to Omnibus and you can start shopping and browsing today. Interesting, uh, I had an exchange with the artist Jacob Phillips this very morning about how he is frustrated with that other digital comic service And it's starting to kill his love of digital comics. And I went, Jacob, uh, you should check out Omnibus. And he says, well, I have been hearing some really positive ads about it on a certain podcast. Wink, wink. And thank you, Jacob, for listening. Uh, And I hope Jacob does check out Omnibus. And I hope you, listener, check out Omnibus and give it a perusal.
1: And guess what I noticed today? They have a bunch of free comics.
0: Yeah, yeah, they definitely do.
1: So who doesn't like free comics?
0: Everyone likes free comics.
1: Yeah. Referral. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> like you never know how I, long Lisa's gonna go with What you those guys things. don't
1: realize is Brad's wind up <laughs> yeah. before he speaks
0: I'm, yeah, I'm he getting takes
1: ready. a lung full of air <laughs> Lisa
0: we gotta bring in Scott and Emma from the waiting room it's time to put them on our counseling couch and get into session and start talking about Dark X-Men The Confession one shot and what's interesting about this one shot is it takes place right between issues of the utopia event. And you get to the end of that penultimate issue and Beast hops onto Scott and Emma's bed and is like, there's too many secrets around here. You're destroying the X-Men with all this secrecy. You gotta get your stuff together, start talking to each other, or it's all gonna be ruined. And then there's a little editor box at the bottom that says, read the confession to know what happens next. And then you turn the page, we're onto the final chapter of a utopia and it's like smash bang boom with hammer. And I do wonder how many people skipped out on the confession and if they did, they missed a major chapter in Scott and Emma's relationship.
1: I don't know, because I've only read the meat of this sandwich. (laughs) I have not read the crisis bread. Yeah,
0: you've also missed a lot.
1: We've had circumstances like that in comics where you go, like, why are these characters all of a sudden just acting completely differently? Yeah. And, like, the uninteresting reason is because it's in service to the plot, like, boring, right? But, like, I love the idea of, like, Hank got in there, he's like we need an intervention, and also you need to put more locks on your doors. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: that's the other thing I wanted to talk about because this very thing happened in the Astonishing X-Men run when Wolverine hopped on their bedpost and was like, "Uh, boy, this sure is grieving. Uh, And it's like, are are they locking their doors or are people constantly breaking into Scott and Emma's bedroom?
1: We've seen in all of the X-Men comics that we've read, there's little respect for doors. Equal lack of respect for walls. I think, like, one of the main reasons that the X Men are so tense and melodramatic is because there is no sense of privacy or boundaries. Yeah,
0: everyone feels like they have access to everyone else's private life.
1: And once you start putting walls up, you know, between you and everybody else, those walls are going to start impeding other areas of your life. Yeah,
0: but. What we discover in the confession is there's other kinds of walls you can put up or black boxes, Lisa, to protect your inner life. But maybe that's also dangerous. I don't know. I wonder how much time has passed between this first panel in the confession and beast storming out. Not a ton of time, but have they been not sleeping there for an hour, two hours, 10 minutes? Could be a week. You don't know. (laughs) You don't know. You don't know. But Emma is not only not sleeping, she's crying. Now, Scott could be crying too, but we can't tell because he's got his shades on.
1: Right, for safety.
0: But Emma's the first one to get out of bed and start staring out the window. And Scott wants to have a serious conversation right now, but Emma just can't deal.
1: And it makes sense. Like Emma's power has always come from her ability to be duplicitous and keep secrets. Like that has been her defense mechanism, but also... Her weapon. Her leverage. Exactly. But for Scott, that idea of having a psychic rapport that's open, having that constant flow of information is his idea of intimacy. Like, oh, you're keeping me out of your secrets, then you're keeping me out of your life. We're not true lovers.
0: Also learned from Emma because... He's been keeping a lot of secrets now that he's ascended to like the proper leader of the X-Men. He's made some decisions recently that he doesn't necessarily want everyone to know about, including Emma.
1: They are both really afraid of rejection. And I think to move forward, they have to assure each other that like no matter what we're in this for the long haul we are a couple
0: i also think that they have shame for things that they have done in their past and they are looking for forgiveness mm. and they're worried that their partner won't forgive them mm-hmm. and you know like it's more than just rejection
1: it's absolution you're saying yeah. yeah but i think that's like putting the cart like so far before the horse because in this scene Scott goes to Emma and goes like, Hank was right. We have to tell all of our secrets right now. And Emma goes like, no, I'm not going to do that for you. I'm not going to do that for anyone. And Scott goes like, okay, yeah, officially rejected. Right? He feels awful. He makes a clenched fist and he storms out.
0: And sleeps on the couch uh, where any student can come and find him bare chested and in his boxers. I'm scandalized.
1: That is inappropriate, right? But in this scene, Scott drops hints that he's like, we're already not together. And that's because this little clutch of students comes up to him and goes like, Emma's missing. We can't find her. And Scott says, did you check her room? And they go, don't you mean your room? Yeah, he's packing
0: his bags. Yeah,
1: yeah, he's out. In his mind, he's been dumped. They are like no longer together.
0: He finds a note from Emma where she says, I'm off to go kill a guy, presumably Norman. And Scott goes to access their psychic rapport, but she's not answering. He runs to the door. He rips it open. And there is Emma. She hasn't gotten that far.
1: And this is where she admits, yeah, I have some secrets that I have to get off my chest. And I need to tell them to you face to face. I am ready for this level of intimacy, but extremely reluctantly and under duress. And do you know what people who are reluctant and under duress love?
0: hoops. Yeah, they enter one of the uh, size shielded rooms so that they can have this conversation. And Emma's ready to talk immediately, but Scott tells her to stop. Let's have this conversation inside in me. He wants to have it happen on his terms.
1: This is like a terrible foot to start this conversation on with, with Emma going like, Will you just listen to me? I'm feeling so frustrated. And Scott's like, no, I got this. I have like the perfect thing. But you know how dudes are when they have like a tool. Yeah, they got a strategy, a plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah." and they're like, don't interrupt my very (laughs) internal train of thought.
0: Yeah, because I know if I do this the way I want to in these steps, it's gonna work out for me. So, you know, Emma has been to this special room before, this black door with the red X. Scott has told her about this psychic black box where he keeps all his secrets. And it's a black box that he learned to construct from Jean Grey. And Emma has not really ever pressured him to open it, and he hasn't felt like opening it. And so to him him inviting her into this special room inside his head and then opening this box it's this ceremony it's this level of commitment that he's never done before and he wants brownie points for it
1: yeah and she it's just not her it's just not her language it's
0: not impressive to her she to does her, this all the time
1: <laughs> no no i think it's like for her intimacy is I'm not going to be curious about your secrets.
0: Yeah, I respect your boundaries.
1: And yeah, and he's going like, no, I'm actually doing this amazing, vulnerable thing. And I think that they do reach a level of understanding through this back and forth, even with this kind of like rocky start.
0: Yeah, we've talked about secrets before on the podcast and how... You know, there are, like, you don't need to know everything about your partner. Right,
1: it's a relationship, not a deposition.
0: Exactly. But if there are things in you that are eating away at you Mm -hmm. and preventing you from being intimate with your partner, you may need to work those things out with a therapist.
1: Right, I think a lot about Esther Perel's, like, infinity symbol. Intimacy in a relationship is not just being one person it's the idea of going apart so you can come together again, going apart so you can come together again. And like the pattern creates this beautiful infinity symbol of a lasting relationship.
0: Right, right, right. So I don't want to like jump to the end of this issue quite yet to see. Dude, we
1: are going page by page. This (laughs) is
0: juicy. There's a lot going on here. Um, But I do relate to Scott in this moment. He wants to get it all out there. I think he does agree with Beast. He does think there's been too many secrets and this is his grand romantic gesture so when emma starts to say like i want to tell you everything that i've been up to but just know that no matter what i and then he cuts her off you never have to tell me that i know you know i know mm-hmm. you love me mm-hmm. all right this is about me showing you what i've done you have no idea what i've done my sins are bigger than your sins But what's interesting is that when he opens the box and the two of them are suddenly surrounded by these shards of memories, most of those memories, I feel like, belong to Emma. Now, we see, obviously, Scott's kill squad, the X-Force, but we see Emma with Tony Stark. We see Emma killing her sister. We see Emma with Namor. So are these Scott's ideas of what Emma's already been up to like is Scott pretty aware of what Emma's been doing
1: I think that Emma's memories are expanding within Scott's box and they're kind of like crashing into each other because what we ultimately get is a very frantic and fragmented conversation where they're both trying to show each other things and get stuff off of their chest. And it does become, like we see in this image, like this hurricane.
0: Yeah, yeah, but the first shards that we explore are the X-Force shards. Scott admits that he's created a team that is, you know, designed to use deadly force. He's put Wolverine out in the field with his grunts and they are doing some deadly damage.
1: The lines that stand out to me in Scott's narration is that, like, this went against everything I believe in and publicly stand for, and I did it anyway. Like, my ultimate priority was keeping us alive, and I didn't have any kind of other alternative to doing this thing that is not the kind of thing Scott Summers would do.
0: How very Henry Kissinger of him.
1: Yeah. And then we turn the page and we see Emma's first confession. And her first confession is, when you met me at the Hellfire Club, that was really me. I am the white queen. I am someone who tortures people and sleeps with people to manipulate them. And, and that's
0: and people think that's what I'm doing with you.
1: And I can't blame them. I have no evidence to the contrary.
0: Yeah, and we see her with Tony Stark and we see her with Namor and it's interesting reading these scenes knowing that Emma Frost is currently married to Tony Stark in universe right now uh but I gotta tell you if uh you go back and read this Matt Fraction run of X-Men the relationship I find the most compelling is the one between Emma and Namor especially as she's trying to navigate her morality within Norman Osborn's The Cabal Mm -hmm. because they're both kind of bastards and I love watching two bastards love each other. And I guess like Emma and Tony Stark, that's kind of a similar vibe going on, which makes her relationship with Scott so unique, like she kind of makes Scott a bastard or is it just a coincidence that he becomes kind of a bastard while they're together?
1: She feels responsible for it because here she says, part of Tony Stark doesn't respect you because of me and he's not the only one, Mm -hmm, right? And mm -hmm. what does Scott Summers cherish more than his reputation and here she is just like publicly damaging it by association.
0: Scott can also see though that the secret is becoming less of a secret to the rest of the X-Men. You know, people are finding bloody sheets around the house and the fact that Scott is keeping a secret is alienating him from others. It's putting his students in danger at times. And
1: it's changing his self perception. He's saying like, I told myself this is for the greater good, but this is who I am now. I am a person who is culpable of all of these awful things.
0: And I kind of get the impression that Emma, at the beginning, sort of resents this confession because when he's talking about endangering his students, she goes, "Uh, I killed all of my students. Right? You endangered your students, but I killed all of them. And then I killed my sister.
1: And she admits to telling herself the same things. She tells herself, I'm doing it for the children, but it's who I am, it's who I've always been, it's who I'll always be. The children are just an excuse for me to be the terrible person that I am publicly known for being. So I feel like we need to get some perspective now from Dr. LaPera, because I think an argument can be made that they're doing all of these things out of self-defense, being a mutant is a really scary and threatening thing to be, and they're being threatened with death all of the time.
0: Uh, and eradication, right? Yes. Like the proposition X is chemical birth control.
1: So I feel like an argument can be made that it's not their authentic selves doing this. It is these conditioned selves. It's Scott's tendency to be this rescuer protector, who's like, putting all of his energy into, I have to protect the vulnerable mutant population, therefore I'm going to sacrifice myself and I'm going to be this person who never needs any help. Like that's something that I can do like for others.
0: But then what about Emma?
1: Yeah, so that's where I'm a little bit stuck because according to Dr. Lepera, there is only seven conditional selves and I don't, I don't see like, um, self-protective femme fatale like on this list. I'm like, uh, maybe she's a life of the party where she's just like, I'm going to fit myself in. I'm going to keep the, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I just-
0: like, honestly, I do think that there is a lot of the caretaker in Emma at this point. You know, she is looking for redemption after the Hellions were killed after her students were killed. And she has a lot of guilt about her responsibility in their deaths. And she's trying to make amends through the X-Men. And that was there in Morrison's new X-Men run. And it's certainly still here right now in the confession.
1: And her, but her being able to list all of these things she's done after she's made the resolution to be, a better person, like...
0: She's doubting herself. Of
1: course she is. She's like, look at the evidence.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I can't blame her. But right now, like, we're just talking about, like, okay, Emma's relationship with herself is damaged. Scott's relationship with himself is damaged. But, like, how can this confessional bring them closer? They have to get to the place where they say, I love you, independent of all of these conditional selves doing all of this other stuff. I love you and not your actions.
0: Yeah, I don't know. You know, what you see here is Scott's on a precipice where he thinks he's either going to save Xavier's dream or kill it. And he believes that if the X-Men ultimately end up becoming X-Force, if they do what X-Force has been doing, then he will have killed the dream. He has to keep... Those two factions or philosophies apart. And Emma's response to that is, the dream's already dead, Scott, and I killed it by joining up with the Cabal, by joining up with Norman Osborn, by sitting at a table with Dr. Doom.
1: Why is that exactly?
0: Well, she is doing with the Cabal what Scott is doing with Mm X-Force. And she thought she could manipulate within the Cabal with the dark X-Men. And I think she's gotten to a point uh, and we're going to see in the final chapter of Utopia that, you know, it just didn't work out. Like she couldn't just stay within that group. She had to ultimately betray Norman Osborn and show that, no, she's team X-Men.
1: And she did have to somehow give up a piece of mutant kind to get in this table in the first place. So it's the theme of the conversation of like, I had to do something awful to roll the dice for something better for mutant kind.
0: And it's such a weird place to end the psychic rapport session because when she says this about the Cabal, we see them separate and come back into the real world, into that psi-shielded room. And Emma has her head you know, her chin to her chest and she, they're neither of them are looking at each other and she starts to say, like, I'm sorry, and then Scott's like, I love you. you know, like, for Scott to, I think, like, Scott going like, yeah, what she was doing with the Cabal is what I've been doing with the X-Force. Our intentions are good.
1: Well, I think, like, I think, you know, he doesn't say, like, I forgive you.
0: True, true. but He, I,
1: he says... I love you. And then he goes on to say, I don't care about Stark or Namor. Those men don't know you, Emma. Not They never did. Not like I do. As in, like, I love your authentic self. You have let me to this deeper place where I can see the real you. And that
0: you're not that different than me. Like the things that I've been doing are the things that you've been doing. We're two Henry Kissinger's in love.
1: Scott states that. He says like, you're willing to do anything for mutant kind just like me. And she's like, no, that's not true. You were doing it to save mutant kind. I was doing it to save my relationship with you. I was preferring death I was preferring the death of my reputation, the death of students, the death of mutant kind over being rejected by you.
0: And I don't know if I believe that. Like, I don't know if that's, that's true. You know, I do think that she is actively on a redemption course because of the Hellions. And I think that is ultimately her motivating factor, not her love for Scott Summers.
1: But I think even for the sake of this confessional, That's a moot point. Because what they're trying to get to is this. Scott is saying, I trust you, Emma, with my life, with all of our lives. I trust you independent of all of the evidence to the contrary. Mm. And she says, I have never doubted you once, despite all of the evidence of the contrary. Right? So this is, like, to me, that is... People saying like, I love you and you are not your history. You, There is a soul in there that is the existence of which is proven by, um, what is it called again? Quantum mechanics, right? <laughs> <laughs> and shut up and kiss me. We're just two authentic selves bearing it on. Well,
0: like it's, you know, shut up and kiss me. I, I think what's we have to address is the last thing that Scott says to her before the kiss is, but you know that when this is all said and done, we'll be cast out by the X-Men, by the Avengers, by everyone. And Emma mm. says, I don't care. So they get to the end of this confession and they accept what they have done to each other. And that's a like, that's enough. They know that they are damned, yeah. but as long as they're damned together, they can continue. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I guess they're just saying so we're just going to keep doing what we're doing, right? And they're like, right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like, like, like the but like the 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 issue ends, the confession ends with Scott going like, well I guess I should have told you this sooner. <laughs> like, yeah.
1: And then they agree on no more secrets. Which Esther Perel would be offended by, but maybe Doctor Nicole Lapera would be fine with.
0: But you get to this moment, and it does feel like finally Scott and Emma are seeing each other as themselves. Yes. Or you know, at, at least they're they're seeing each other as the selves that they think they are. Yeah. You know? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Or they, they believe that they are their principles independent of their actions.
0: And it is a major turning point in their relationship. And it does get us then to the next two issues where I feel like the two of them are at their most high functioning. By jumping into issues 518 and 519 of Uncanny X-Men, we are jumping into the middle of a lot of stuff that we are going to ignore. We're just focusing on Scott and Emma in these issues. And all that you really need to know is what we've stated already, that Emma in conflict with the century absorbed a sliver of the malevolent entity that lives within the century, the Void. And everyone is scared that if the Void takes over Emma, the White Queen, we are going to have a devil on Earth.
1: In order to keep the Void contained within her, Emma has locked herself into her diamond state, which doesn't just make her like impervious to like, projectiles outside of her body, whatever. But also she is emotionally walled up, where she has no empathy, she has no sympathy, she's just like a cold, (laughs) cold Emma Sickle.
0: Yeah, I like that detail a lot too. Like she's even colder than usual.
1: Yeah, she's physically walled off, she's psychically walled off, and she's emotionally walled off. And she's hard to persuade, like, hey, where are your friends? Let us in there so we can get that pesky void out. And so the plan is like, okay, we'll send Scott in because he's going to be the one, if anyone can access her emotions and persuade her, it's going to be Scott.
0: So Professor X is going to send Scott inside Emma, and then Psylocke is going to be on the side that if anything goes wrong, if suddenly Emma diamonds down, that means the void has taken over, and Psylocke, you got to kill her. And I love the detail that it's Psylocke, because as we know, as longtime comic book couples counseling listeners, Scott has a thing for Psylocke, or had a thing for Psylocke, Remember that issue where uh, Scott was like ogling her by the pool, the Jim Lee issue? And then Jean was like, hey, what are you doing?
1: Yeah, but her novelty has way worn <laughs> off by this point. Like, everybody's seen that outfit. Like, okay, <laughs> Bets, we get it.
0: You're hot. And it appears initially that when Scott enters into Emma, that sounds dirty, because <laughs> it is. Because it totally is. When he enters Emma, these other identities, personas of Emma start to physically or psychically pull the two of them apart but these other emmas are not speaking with emma's voice they're speaking with the void's voice they have a black word balloon a square word balloon
1: but scott can't see that like he can't see that they're speaking with like black word balloons but he
0: can see like their black voidy eyes right like he doesn't he doesn't clock that oh gosh this is the void immediately but i think like he should
1: i think it's way more romantic than that i think he can go like okay I can recognize your authentic self versus. All of these other iterations of you that are there purely defensively, <laughs> so
0: that when he does clock it, like, oh, the, the, these are not Emma. These other things are not Emma. This is the void. He can go. I have no problem blasting you in the face.
1: Right, and we all know that blasting someone <laughs> in the face is the universal sign of not respecting her. Right, right, So right. So yeah, so yeah. Of course, he can. He can blast. Conditional Emma in the face.
0: (laughs) I love this panel. And I just want to take a moment. I'm really enjoying Terry Dodson and Rachel Dodson's art during this sequence. Yeah.
1: I find it like extremely overtly symbolic, this idea of the void. When you have a void inside you, it sucks away at the person that you truly are. And I think that the symbolism is the most apparent when Cyclops begins blasting him in the face. (laughs) Yep. And they start saying things like, feelings mean pain. The flesh means pain. No more pain. It's like this idea of like vulnerability is unsafe. Like, I'm in a place where I can't be vulnerable. And um, that's why I think Emma was so susceptible to the void. It wasn't just like that she was in a a therapeutic relationship with Reynolds. I think it's also like when you back her into a corner.
0: She shuts down.
1: She doesn't find other people safe. She can only depend on herself. So the way that Scott ultimately appeals to her is you're not alone in here. I'm here to help you. Follow the sound of my voice. Fight through all of these defenses that you have up to find me, because these defenses aren't you, right? These defenses are the void.
0: Yeah, and she's able to pull herself from those inky black clutches, and Scott is able to blast optically through the psychic wall, and they're able to connect, and when they do grasp onto each other finally. It is like a really thrilling moment. It is a really romantic moment also, but it doesn't last long because we quickly realize that at some point we actually entered into Scott's mental space, that this white place here at the end of this issue is the hotel full of women where the confession took place.
1: So where do we think this happened?
0: Well, I'm not sure. I was trying to figure that out. Like it could be on page 14 when all the other Emmas speaking with the void's voice grab hold of Scott and pull him down and then Scott we see on the outside, you know, Professor X is is seeing Scott like freak out and like you know contort. It could be that moment or it could have been the very beginning. Like this entire time could have been in Scott's place and i I think I say that because when Emma says at the end of the issue like or when Scott says at the end of this issue, you know, the hotel full of women, you know the other personas of Emma that we see in this issue are dressed kind of like the other women that we saw way back when in uncanny x men five o four mm-hmm. which we haven't really talked about, but that's when Scott revealed the black box uh to Emma initially,
1: I think the direction changed when Emma's like, oh, I feel like I'm being chased
0: Mm, now at this mm, point mm, instead mm, of like,
1: mm, you know, like I, I feel like they're trying to move me. So I think maybe when Scott hears Emma through the floor and then he blasts through the floor and kind of pulls her through, the void is inside her, leaves her, and pulls kicks him her in, out.
0: And pulls him in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe. I, like, I'd like. i love to hear what listeners think, like when, when, when they think that that happened. But honestly, like, does it even really matter? Because the issue ends with Emma on the outside telling Professor X and uh, Betsy Braddock that the Void apparently wanted Scott all along.
1: And it totally worked. Like, Scott didn't recognize his own mind. But the second that Emma left... We see the void emerge from the ruins of the hotel room.
0: Yeah, on the last page of five eighteen, and in five nineteen, when we finally get back to Scott, it's it's the hotel room. There's the guest book and the void have their fingers pointed at him. You, 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 you.
1: And those silhouettes are all the outline of Jean. Yeah. We see Marvel Girl. We see Phoenix. We see the Black Queen, and they're saying, "Why couldn't you save us?" Right. Right.
0: And. You know, in Uncanny X-Men 504, when Emma first visited this hotel room, all the women of the uh, X-Men team were there. Like you could see versions of, you know, Rogue and Storm, but there was no Jean Grey present. There were no redheads.
1: And I think that he was specifically suppressing her. Like he didn't want to think about what he still considers a failed marriage and a failed relationship because we see these outlines of Gene articulating all of his fears. You're not good enough and I could have made you better. I could have given you, uh, like I could still give you power. Yeah, let
0: me give you greatness.
1: Maybe we're seeing like a little bit of hero worshiper in Scott's conditioned self. Like he (laughs) worshiped Gene and he could never be good enough for her. And then Emma busts in. I
0: love this moment.
1: Me too. And she starts just like spinning this energy and
0: exploding. And she looks so good. She's like in this combat attire. Yeah, yeah. Like it's such a like Schwarzenegger moment. She is here to save the day, to save her man.
1: And I love what she has to say because Scott is of course like, oh my, like how did you do that? And she says like, uh, we're living in the life of the mind where anything is possible lucidity is a weapon
0: she's been watching some nightmare on elm street
1: she's been listening to dr nicole lapera that right too. like when you let your subconscious drive you you have no control over your choices but if you understand like that is just my my trauma coming back and trying to protect me, like, you go, okay, now I have options. Like, I'm not going to let, I I am going to say, subconscious, I see you, thank you for trying to help, but I get to make choices, I'm lucid.
0: Right, so if you think you're being chased by the void, you're being chased by the void, but if you don't think you're being chased, then you're not being chased, and if you think you're drowning, then you are drowning, and then suddenly, Scott is drowning in his bathing trunks.
1: And then the void comes at him with all of his insecurities. How does it feel to prepare your entire life for just one thing? And you grow up and discover like you're not good enough. Like give in to the void and I will make you the leader you wish to be. And then Scott uses what he has learned from Emma and he imagines a wall and he blasts his way through it. And on the other side of the wall is Jeannie's black box.
0: I do like that when the void is appealing to Scott's insecurities, he says, I am everything you ever wanted. And Emma hears that and says, Hey, I resent that remark. Like she gets defensive (laughs) because she knows that the void is speaking right to his agony and that there is truth there.
1: And Scott recognizes that truth as well, but he says, Em, get away. And her caretaker starts kicking in. Like, I can't leave you alone. If I leave you, like, you're not going to be okay. I can help you. And he replies, I'm thinking in my mind that this is a room you can't come into. And if I think about it long enough and I believe it long enough, if you can't come in and if I say it, I believe it. Emma, I love you, trust me. Go home. So now he's applying immediately what Emma taught him. And so now he's in a room in his mind with two lessons, a lesson from Emma and a lesson from Jean Grey. Oh, so
0: good, so good, so good. And, you know, the void tries to drown him again. but And,
1: and Professor X and Psylocke are like, <laughs> okay, we got to kill him now.
0: <laughs> uh, but he's able to put... The void in the black box and keep the black box locked away in that particular room with the black door and the red X.
1: And he says, thank you, Jeannie. That's another one. I owe you.
0: And so like, that's a big moment too, where he's able to acknowledge Jeannie in that place. Right.
1: But, and from a place of gratitude, like, Hey, Jeannie, you're not here anymore, but you're still helping me. And, That is, that is, that makes our relationship worth it.
0: Yeah, but he's still Cyclops. (laughs) He still has some confidence that I'm not sure is deserved because he goes, nobody will ever open that door. Nobody will ever open that door. Nobody will ever ever open that door, you know, uh, because if he says it, it's gonna happen. It's his space, you know, he owns that space. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that door will never get opened again.
1: I don't know, I I love what he says when he comes out like, what can I say? I'm an expert in repression. (laughs) Like,
0: (laughs) This never works out badly.
1: Everything, every, like all, internal mind walls always stay intact. Yeah, he, you
0: know, there's some humor there. There's some self-awareness there uh, that I respect.
1: But I mean, like, we've all been in that position where we go, like... Okay, we're just going to have to deal with good enough for now. Yeah. You know, like Well, that's
0: the X-Men way. Yeah. Right? Like that's the X-Men way. We gotta deal with we gotta we gotta accept what's good enough right now.
1: We'll just keep putting out the fire because we don't have time to address the electrical system or whatever. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And that's where we're gonna leave Gene. Oh, 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 Freudian slip. (laughs) Freudian slip. That's where we're gonna leave Emma and Scott today.
1: And also a little
0: Gene. And a little gene. And as they stand now, Lisa, how are you feeling about Scott and Emma as a couple?
1: Dare I say it? Optimistic? Yeah, like, so um, one of the things we talk about all of the time on comic book couples counseling is from the Gottmans and and their love lab, and how they said, like, couples that talk about their relationships as stories of triumph tend to last longer than couples where they tell the story of their relationship as struggle and failure. Yeah. And I think that's also true for your relationship with yourself. Like yeah. I feel like Scott was looking at himself as a failure because of all of the compromises he's had to make with his principles and, you know, the, f- the like the way he views his relationship with Jean Grey as a failure, and his attraction to Emma as a also a failure of character, like, I think that he just wasn't going to be able to function like that. Yeah. like he was he couldn't he couldn't move forward looking at himself as a failure and looking at his relationship with Gene Gray as a personal failure. And I think now, having triumphed over his fears, manifested by the void he's going to feel a lot more confident in his his relationship and I think also Emma seeing him conquer his fears on his own and going like I don't actually even though he is way less powerful than me like I don't have to babysit him anymore he can take care of himself and we can be a more balanced couple.
0: I get to the end of these three issues, which I really loved. Me I liked too. all three of these issues Me too. and I like them a lot as a couple. I like them more than I have ever before. And I would recommend that if you enjoy schema and you want more schema, you really should read the entirety of the Matt Fraction run. Uh, this is the most space that they get as a couple in that entire run, so there aren't really as many issues that are as this weighty regarding their relationship, uh, but there's lots of good little bits here and there, especially issue 504.
1: If I was to take a lesson from Scott and Emma specifically, I think like it is good to like step outside of your partner's problems to kind of let them resolve them on their own. Like, I know I have the tendency of like, um, when you're, you're in some kind of conflict, I go like, let me get in there. Let me fix it. Let me, let me, um, let me save you. And like... I I, I think sometimes it's just like, uh, just let him do it on its own. And I know that I feel those those times of like, Brad, get out of my mind and let me just fix this on my own. Like you can't like you don't have the expertise for my problems. I
0: do also want to say, though, that I think that the dark places that both Scott and Emma have descended, especially Scott with uh, X-Force. Um, it's, uh, it's really troubling. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it is a time bomb. And I think if Scott and Emma were a hill, we've hit the top and our next two episodes, our final two episodes discussing Scott and Emma are the downhill.
1: Right, right. But I feel like particularly in the confession, they have built a fortress around their relationship where they go, okay, well, if everything outside us explodes like it inevitably is going to do, we're still going to be intact. Yeah, And I kind of believe in it. I okay. do, All am right. I well, a hopeless romantic?
0: Well, we wait until we reveal what our next episode's gonna be, Lisa. Uh, and I'm very curious to see if you will still feel that way after we read that particular storyline. Uh, but is there anything else regarding Dr. LaPera that you want to address? Uh, or reflect on before we get out of here.
1: Absolutely. Like, I still am super vibing with the idea of conditional selves and this idea that, like, you have to kind of, like, not ignore your subconscious, but, like, kind of, like, ride the wave of your subconscious. Like, seeing, like, okay, like, I'm, I'm kind of just kind of robotically moving Mm -hmm. through my life, Mm -hmm. letting choices be made for me. And like, I need to at least look at my problems from a perspective of like, I could do what I would tend to do, but I also have other options. I should never feel like cornered by my subconscious, but I also don't think that this is like this tremendously
0: revolutionary (laughs) idea. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, I like you know, the concept of the authentic self versus the conditioned self. Um, but it also feels very, like, common sense. Right. And I don't know if I necessarily even have bought into the seven categories yeah, of no. the conditioned self yet.
1: Big time, I haven't. Okay. And, and, and like, to me, like, I mentioned it in our introduction. Like, why are there only seven of them? And why are five out of seven yeah. hypervigilant people pleasers? yeah Like, so something I haven't talked about a lot with Dr. Nicole LaPera is that this book is kind of a balance between um, memoir type material and then her self help type material, but like she tends to look at things through a very personal lens, and she has a tendency to just presume that everybody has the exact same problems yeah, that she has. So I think that she is a hyper vigilant people pleaser, and she is just like. Projecting that possibly onto all of these other things. And I think it's important for our listeners to know she is no longer practicing as a um, psychotherapist or a psychologist. Oh, interesting. She, so um, she still has an active license, but she has moved much more into life coaching. Mm, yeah, more into the like <laughs> YouTube, TikTok. Okay. Influencer space, okay,
0: and she's okay. been
1: criticized for moving people away from psychotherapy and instead, like, like hashtag self healing. And part of self healing is joining her community for twelve dollars a month.
0: Okay, okay, got, so, it, got, like, it, got, it, got it, got it, got it. You
1: know, as a uh, as a couple with a podcast and a Patreon, <laughs> right. Like, we understand, like curating an online community but we would never say that our community is a substitute for say um taking your car in to get the oil changed you know like uh, there are some things that um need to be done by a professional Right. right right and there's just like there's just no amount of uh influencing that can be a substitute for but you, a big psychological problem.
0: You have not finished the book yet no. either, right? No,
1: you, I'm I'm through chapter five.
0: Okay, okay. So we'll move on to the next chapter. Uh, of Dr. LaPera in our next uh, Scott and Emma episode. Uh, We've got a lot of cool stuff coming up, comic book couples counseling-wise. If you are in the Washington, D.C. area on March 8th, come on down to AwesomeCon, the premier comic book convention, and find us in room 206 at 8.30 p.m., Lisa and I are having the first ever comic book couples counseling in-person panel.
1: Yes, yes. We wanted to have kind of like cozy after-con party vibes. Yeah. Like, hey, you spent a whole day at the con, let's decompress, let's gather our thoughts, let's speak romance, let's talk comic book couples. And
0: the panel right before us is about the fun of smutty fan fiction. Yeah. So hit up them at 7.30, and then stick around at 8.30 for comic Get book all couples counseling.
1: up. Get all (laughs) horned up, and then get with us, and we're going to tell you to settle down.
0: And before that, on February 25th at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia at 4 o'clock, we are screening the superhero satire from the 90s, The Meteor Man, which was written, produced, directed, and starred... Robert Townsend, who also made American—not American—I was going to say American fiction because I just read an article between that film's writer Cord Jefferson and Robert Townsend, who did Hollywood Shuffle. Yeah, and the idea being that American Fiction is kind of the spiritual sequel to Hollywood Shuffle, uh, and I recommend both those movies. Uh, but the Meteor Man. Is the one that we are celebrating along with our co-sponsors the Eisner-nominated comic book store for color fantasies and we will have a virtual introduction from Robert Townsend yes so excited about that uh, a couple weeks ago I emailed his agent and then suddenly this virtual intro popped in my inbox and it's beautiful clearly Robert Townsend has a lot of passion and love for this film still and if you haven't seen Meteor Man, I like it's it's time to revisit it. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, so I'm really curious about it. And
1: I've never seen it at all. Uh,
0: I can't wait. I can't wait. It's got this crazy cast. You know, Marvel Comics did an adaptation of it uh, when the movie came out. But then they had a six-issue series as that served as a sequel in which Spider-Man shows up and Night Thrasher. Uh, I've been slowly collecting those issues, and they're a lot of fun.
1: There will be trivia, there will be prizes. Tickets are like $7, but... If you are a patron, you get in for free, you just have to speak to via the internet, either Brad or I. (laughs) Do not call the Alamo Drafthouse Winchester and demand your free ticket because they will not give it to you. And
0: it's a great time to become a patron. Lisa and I are currently reading Sandman Endless Nights, one chapter at a time, one episode at a time. We just completed 15 Portraits of Despair and that was a really challenging but interesting conversation that we had.
1: Yeah, that's one. I was frequently checking the Patreon comments going like, did I hurt anyone's feelings? Did I say anything (laughs) offensive?
0: And if you are a film fan as well, we've had uh, a director interview with Andrew Cumming talking about the new release film Out of Darkness. Uh, We actually had Cord Jefferson talking about American fiction on the Patreon feed and its star, Jeffrey Wright. Yes, Commissioner Gordon. There is an interview with him on our Patreon feed. Uh, Pretty excited about all of that.
1: So we've talked about what we're doing in the meat space. We've talked about what we're doing in the (laughs) the Patreon space, but what are we doing next in our main feed, Brad?
0: Our next episode will be a creator corner conversation with cartoonist Tom Scholey talking about his graphic novel biography. I am Stan, which of course is about the legendary Stan, the man Lee. And we actually had that conversation a little while ago and I've been waiting to put this out on the air and I'm so excited that it's finally here. And of course we will have our next Schema episode right after that one. And we are tackling, yes, the big one, Avengers versus X-Men. I was trying to find a way not to cover Avengers versus X-Men because I have some strong, severe feelings about it. But I just don't think we can talk Schema unless we get through Avengers vs. X-Men and Lisa I am pretty excited at the notion of you reading Avengers versus X-Men.
1: You've already warned me that we cannot do a page-by-page. Page. No, Otherwise, no, this no. would be like a 19-hour episode. We
0: are sticking only to the Scott and Emma scenes, you We'll know? see
1: about that.
0: <laughs> no, we, we have to, we have to, or it will be a nine-hour episode. So that's everything going on in comic book couples counseling land. Get excited if you're not already, but you should be. Okay,
1: Brad, I feel like I need to just kind of retract into my mind space, which is not a white liquid, but not liquid room, nor is it a hotel room. I think it's, Brad, it's a cozy coffee shop. (laughs) Oh, it's a Starbucks.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) They're everywhere. You can't get away from there.
1: Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you?
0: You can find me on most social medias at Mouthdork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show posters, send them to Karen Chap at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I'm
1: always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, Audible, Apple Podcasts, whatever app you prefer. We are everywhere. If you'd like to get exclusive, Woo-hoo. you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes.
0: If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, podcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to our free newsletter, our psychic rapport. And you can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on all the socials at CBCC Podcast.
1: You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? Yes,
0: please. We are
1: fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod.
0: So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full
1: and your psychic rapport open.
0: Doopy doopy. Bum, bum ba, oh. da, bum,
1: bum, ba, da, ba. frequently check the the Patreon comics going comments I was frequently checking the Patreon comics fuck I was frequently checking the Patreon comic fuck I was frequently checking the Patreon comics going like
0: you said it again.